as scientists don't just are born into this field, there's something that happens to us along the way that excites us, that gets us that change in direction and accelerates us towards our target. And that's a gravity assist too. Hey, Space Watchers. This is Space Cafe Radio, your channel about trends, great people, and awesome conferences. I'm Kara Monter, event coordinator in our Space Watch global team. This is another episode of our ISU Space Studies program series, live from Oeiras, Portugal. The Space Studies program, or SSP, is a unique and intense two-month professional development course for postgraduate students and professionals of all disciplines. At the SSP 22, I had the pleasure of talking to Jim Green, scientist and senior advisor in the office of the chief scientist at NASA. We spoke about what it's like to be a chief scientist at NASA, the project he is most proud of in his career, his goal with the SSP 22, how to communicate space and science and the role movies can play with this, and most significantly, the importance of gravity assist. Enjoy our conversation. So it's really a pleasure to be sitting here with you. I would like to just start off with your history because you were chief scientist at NASA. What do you do now? How was that whole transition? Chief scientist at NASA was a wonderful opportunity for me to help the civil servants in many of the centers. We have NASA has 10 centers. We have civil servant scientists, nearly every center. So that's an element of what a chief scientist does. But I also, in that position, do a lot of outreach This is where the scientists of NASA are represented through the chief scientist who talks about what we do, the discoveries we make. So that is a really exciting job because I have to be up on everything. Now, of course, that's not possible, but that's okay. As a chief scientist, you try your best. At least you know who to talk to or to get more information about the exciting stuff we do. And what is it that you do now? Ah. So I actually was the chief scientist from 2018 until January of this year. So January 1st, I retired after being in NASA 42 years, okay, for which chief scientist was the last thing I did. But then NASA hired me back the next day. So on January 2nd, I became a senior advisor in the office of the chief scientist. So I work on special projects, and those special projects are looking internally on what NASA's doing, creating what we'd call a position paper on how we might be able to do and organize things better in the agency based on our experience. I'm also working in areas like on planetary protection. We review a number of things, missions going to certain places, and we want to make sure we're following the guidelines in terms of forward contamination and backward contamination so that we keep the earth safe and we keep, if we find life elsewhere, that's safe. Sounds really interesting. Also, 42, great number, the answer to life, the universe and everything. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> But now you mentioned projects and that actually leads me very well to my next question, which might be a bit difficult to answer. But what is the one project that you're most proud of? In my entire career? Oh, see, that's really hard to do. Really hard to tell you. I've been involved in so many missions, a couple dozen missions, and in some cases, much more responsibility than in others. But in each and every one of those, we do spectacular stuff. There's a place in my heart for everything from flying by Pluto to Cassini at Saturn to the mission called IMAGE that orbited the Earth and looked at the Earth's magnetosphere and its interaction with the solar wind, and so many more 
that we could spend quite a while talking about each and every one of them. But I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about NASA is the opportunities it provided me. So not only was I a scientist working on scientific research, but I had an opportunity to develop NASA's first internet in 1980, which grew significantly. And then we merged it with the the National Science Foundation's internet, which then now has become ubiquitous everywhere, to diving in the neutral buoyancy tank, working with astronauts and suited subjects as they figure out how to repair Hubble or how to save a satellite or how to build space station. We do these things in water tanks to test the processes and procedures so that they can, on space, do it as effectively as possible. No surprises. We don't like surprises in space. So those opportunities have just really been spectacular. And NASA really has provided me that opportunity. Incredible. I think, yes, we could probably spend an entire day just talking more about the projects because it does sound fascinating. Yesterday we met at the opening ceremony and then you mentioned Gravity Assist, which is not only the name of your podcast, but has a lot more meaning to you as I gathered. Could you briefly explain what Gravity Assist is and then maybe also what it means to you? I was head of planetary science at NASA, running all the planetary missions from 2006 to 2018 before I became chief scientist. And so Gravity Assist we talked about all the time. It's a planetary term that is a process for which a planet is used to accelerate and change the direction of a spacecraft. So if you want to go to Pluto, for instance, you go via Jupiter. So you fly to Jupiter. Jupiter pulls you in because it's such a massive planet. It's 300 times the mass of our own planet. And as you skirt around it, You take a little angular momentum away, so it changes your direction and then accelerates you to that target, which was Pluto. So we use gravity assist all the time in the solar system. It's sort of like we're pinging around from place to get to where we need to go. So that's the scientific term. But to me, we as scientists don't just are born into this field. There's something that happens to us along the way that excites us, that gets us that change in direction and accelerates us towards our target. And that's a gravity assist too. It's such a beautiful way to put this into kind of an image of how to get there. Because I always find that talking to people in the space sector, it's usually that you don't find space. It's space that finds you and guides you along. Got it. Yeah, indeed. So my podcast, Gravity Assist, is where I spend time talking to scientists and engineers that have really discovered some spectacular stuff. And at the end of that, I want a personal comment. I want to know what their gravity assist was. What did it take to get them into this field to do the fabulous stuff they do? And and many of them haven't listened to my podcast, don't understand that I'm going to ask them this question, but they get it immediately. They know exactly what it was, whether it was a book or it was the landing on the moon or was Carl Sagan or it was so many different things. It's really remarkable how varied that is. There's not one formula that says, have your kid do this and he'll become a scientist, you know. On that note of very diverse tracks, we are now here at the SSP 22 and you're here as a mentor and a lecturer for the ISU SSP. What's your personal goal with this? What do you hope to reach? So here's the future of our activity in space. So we have 
more than 30 countries represented. I think it's like 37 from 107 students. This is a fantastic section of young, intelligent, you know, early career people in the space aerospace business. And they're here because of that thirst of knowledge of trying to understand every aspect of the field. So my goal here is to see them, talk to them, excite them, give them, if I can, a gravity assist. Many of them already have that, that goal in mind, and I'm just along the way to push them even further. I have hired ISU students. I have helped place ISU students. I go to various space agencies and talk to I, former ISU students. Now there's been more than 5,000 ISU students that have graduated in the master's program and in the summer program. And so that's an important connection that we have. And that connection is critical because when we go into space, the moon is not owned by any one country. If we go to the moon and live and work on the moon and then on Mars, we represent all of humanity on Earth. And to do that, we have to be able to understand all our cultures, all our individual capabilities and perspectives and represent that because that's what humanity is all about. And that's what we're really trying to do. When you think about on Space Station, many of your audience perhaps are 20 years old or younger that listen to your podcast. In their lifetime, there's always been someone on orbit. It's really a remarkable idea. And they've come from many different countries. And when they're in Space Station, they all work together. The fact that they come from a country X, Y, or Z doesn't matter. They're part of a team. And that concept I really like. And that's what ISU, I think, really fosters more than any other organization I've ever seen. It is a really incredible network. And also to see at the opening ceremony yesterday, all these different countries, nationalities being represented. I don't know about you, but I actually got a little teary-eyed. And I've seen that opening ceremony many times. <laughs> it was my first, and I was. this is very incredible. It was really an honor to be there. On the subject of working together, of getting people involved, I would also like to focus a bit more on the communication aspect. We have here a lot of people who are really interested and just excited about space, and it's wonderful to see but what do we need in order to communicate space and also the science aspect better with the outside world, with the people who are not as engaged yet? I always said that science that we do in space is not done until you communicate it. And that actually is a double-edged sword. Not only do scientists go to meetings to talk about what they've done, and get input from a variety of scientists to make it more understandable or better or show major progress in a particular area. But we have to communicate that with the public. We really owe the public that knowledge. And that's not a capability that is innate in scientists. They can communicate between them, but it's difficult to communicate to the public in many cases. So we've had great communicators. There's been Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson, and people that understand the field and can take that and explain it. We need more of those type of communicators that can let people know that, indeed, space is extremely important to us. You may feel that there are people that, I've encountered them, that feel, well, why are we spending money in space? We need to 
stay, take that money and protect our earth. And in reality, it's from the space advantage that allows humanity to continue to live and grow and work on this planet. From space, any individual country can see how much land they have under cultivation. And by that, they can determine if they're going to export or import food. All right. From space, you can understand tracking wildlife for the preservation purposes or fishing in the ocean and where to go that is a responsible use of the ocean's resources. We understand that the climate is changing on Earth, and some of it is natural changes, but there's also major changes that are occurring because of humans living on Earth and generating greenhouse gases, which is warming the planet. At a time, actually, where climate change would say our planet should be cooling, we're actually warming a little bit. We're overdoing that, all right? And that knowledge comes from space. How we talk about climate change originally started on the planet Venus. When we went to Venus in the late 70s and into the, we had a whole series of scientists that were looking at why is Venus so hot? Venus is the size of the Earth. Why isn't it more Earth? And yet the temperature on the surface is hot enough to melt lead with enormous pressures. And so we cracked that problem. It turns out we now understand it's what we call a runaway greenhouse effect, where light comes from the sun, is absorbed in the atmosphere, and then the atmosphere doesn't let it out. And so it just keeps heating up. It's much like getting in a car during the summer, and it's so hot there because light has come through the window, heated the upholsteries, but then the windows are opaque to that heat, so it just builds up in the car. What's happened then is those individuals took those codes and brought them to Earth, created Earth models, and then began to play with those in supercomputers by adding CO2 and understanding the effects. And voila, we then realized that small amounts of CO2 over long periods of time produce warming, and that warming can move us more towards a Venus-like environment. So what's happened on Venus can happen on Earth. What's happening on Mars can happen on Earth. By being space-aware and seeing how these planets are at different phases of their evolution, we can determine how the Earth will evolve. So space advantage is incredibly important for the survival of humans on this planet. I was at the ELA Air Show in Berlin, where there was also a lot of presentations on the benefits of Earth observation and the necessity of it. You are very aware. I am aware. But how can we break out of the silo of our comfort space, of our space bubble, and to really bring this to other people? And you mentioned before, good communicators. But is this resting on the shoulders of those few people who can just talk and excite people? Or should we also change something within the way we work or we share information? I like to have many more people to communicate because there's so many things that are going on. And ISU provides us an opportunity to talk about what we do in space and seek out those that can really also explain what they do well and be recognized for being good communicators. So I think the concept that we need to be much verbal about what we're doing and getting the word out is starting to happen. It's starting to happen. Now, there's revolution 
in social media. I've certainly seen it in my lifetime. We, it, the When I was born, we didn't have much. Our phone was on the wall. There was no uh, iPhones and no computers to speak of. And consequently, there's just been enormous changes. And that social media provides us an opportunity to go to places where different age groups really enjoy, whether it's podcasting or it's Facebook or it's other locations. And so by noting that by providing information in those venues, we reach those audiences. And we're starting to do that, I think, more and more. And those people that get excited about it want to know more about it. Therefore, we can tell them that. Not everyone is going to be excited about space, but a majority of the people are. And the majority of the people want to know what we're doing and what they're getting for their money. Because many of the space agencies, of course, are really taking public money for the benefit of the population. We just have to tell them what we're doing. Indeed. And I think just to give that impulse, of course, not everyone's going to jump on and want to know everything, but at least they should know what is going on. Yeah. It's like getting access to the library. Okay. But by telling them what we're doing, we're giving them an opportunity to go down that row and say, here's all the information I want to know. But of course, now we're not, that information's not trapped in books. So many things that I talk about in my podcast with scientists and engineers won't appear in textbooks for 10 years or more. The field is moving so fast, and that's what really makes it exciting. In my lifetime, we've discovered another region in our solar system that was only theorized, and we call that the Kuiper Belt. These are objects that are left over from the formation of the solar system. Icy bodies, pluto size. Now, the reason that this is so exciting is we know about Pluto, but many people don't realize there's probably thousands of Pluto-like objects, maybe tens of thousands of Pluto-like objects beyond the orbit of Pluto. Really fascinating, a whole brand new area. We didn't know that we would ever have the opportunity to see a planet orbiting a sun that's not our own sun. And yet, we now know, based on all the spacecraft data that we've been finding, that there are more planets than there are stars in our Milky Way. I mean, that, that change is just enormous. And it allows us then to do much more in the way of looking for life beyond Earth, looking for planets that are more Earth-like. We see all kinds of planets that are the size of the Earth, but we don't really know if they're like the Earth. They could be like Venus. They could be like Mars. And so the next 10 years will have just huge impacts in that particular area. And I think that's really exciting. And that's just a couple things. Completely agree on that part. You're not going to hear this, but my eyes are lighting up and I'm just getting incredibly excited. But back to the subject of also using platforms to communicate this. And of course, social media is a very important one. We've also seen, especially on the space situational awareness side, that, for example, the movie Gravity has been referenced again and again. And now we've seen movies Don't Look Up, we've had Space Force, and For All Mankind. Do you think these kind of movies or series are helpful in conveying the picture that we want? Or does it cause people to take it more for granted? Ooh, interesting question. I love movies. As a scientist, I've been involved supporting, from a NASA perspective, a number of, of movies, like The Martian. 
I was the lead consultant for NASA on the Martian. And when Ridley Scott came to NASA and said, look, I want the look and feel of Mars. I want to make it as realistic as possible. Man, I was there. So when I was assigned to do that, I loved it. It was just a wonderful opportunity. So I really enjoy various aspects of science fiction. But I have to tell you, as a scientist, when I go to movies like any of those, I check my science at the door, grab some popcorn, go on in and be entertained. But science and science fiction does a dance. And this is what Carl Sagan said. And what we see is, like The Martian, we're going to experience many of the same things that are in that movie when we really go to Mars. And so there, you end up getting no appreciation of how difficult it is and what the environment is like through a movie, through reading science fiction. If you don't spend time dreaming, you don't have a future that you have to have. You have to have opportunities like that. So science and science fiction play, I think, a really neat role working together. What makes it difficult is when we don't do an adequate job separating fact from fiction. Okay. After the Martian, I found a number of people saying, oh, aren't we already on Mars? I would love to say, yeah, of course, we're all over Mars, but only robotically. We're not there with humans yet. So we have to be, as good communicators, the ability to put that and into those two buckets and tell the facts and let people know what we're aspiring to. And that's what helps in that area is the science fiction that allows us to aspire to some really spectacular things. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to have, sit down with me and have a chat. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. If you want to stay on the pulse of space, visit our website, Our Mothership, at www.spacewatch.global and subscribe to our newsletter. Don't forget to check out our full program of Space Cafe Radios where we offer interviews, insights, and editorial comments on the space sector. Thank you all very much for listening, and with that, I leave you for today. And don't forget, become a space watcher. Bye!